at that. It's got quiet at the voice of Ryan. That's not, it's kind of scary to have that kind of power, right? No, I'm just kidding. All right, um, welcome to uh, Sunday morning, Sunday school. Um, as you can see, I'll be uh, teaching today and probably for uh, the next couple weeks, we're going to start um, going through the book of Second Timothy. Um, it's a beautiful book, of course, and we'll get into that a little bit. Today's pretty much going to be just an introduction to the book. We'll go over some things, some background, some why I feel like Paul wrote this. So we'll get through all that. Um, so it may not go full to 10 or so, but uh, we'll go as long as we can, answer some questions at the end, hopefully um, have some discussion. Before we start, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we just praise you for who you are. Lord, we are just so grateful and so thankful that um, we are able to be here to hear your word preached, to hear your word read, and just to be in the presence of fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, we thank you for the word, your word, your eternal word. And Lord, we pray that as we listen, as we read, as we hear it, we take it for what it is, and it is the word of God. It is you speaking to us. And Lord, we are so grateful that you have chosen to leave this for us, to be able to study, to be able to meditate on, to be able to learn from it and grow from it. Um, like Second Timothy says, it is useful for all things, for teaching, for correcting, and training in righteousness. So what I pray that as we go through this, that you would it'd be a blessing to everyone, as it has been a blessing to me to study. And Lord, I pray that you would just bless our time this morning. In Christ's name I pray, amen. So, the book of 2 Timothy, um, like I said, today's going to be kind of an intro, and then next week I'll get into uh, verses, the first few verses. So, some of this may be kind of a repeat for some of you guys, some of it may be new information, um, but I want to get into it because I think the background is pretty important. So, who wrote the book of 2 Timothy? It's pretty obvious, I think. Paul, right? So, Paul wrote the second book of Timothy, he wrote the first book, he wrote a lot, 13 books of the New Testament, so he's pretty prominent in that. Um, so before we get kind of started, we know that Paul has been in prison a few times, but that was nothing to Paul, right? As we see from 2 Corinthians, I'm sorry, it's like a furnace up here, so I'm trying to get my sleeves up. Um, so we see in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, he writes, starting in verse 23, are they servants of Christ? As I speak as if insane, I more so, and far more labors, and far more imprisonments, beaten times without number, often in danger of death. Five times I received from the Jews 39 lashes. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. A night and a day I've spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship through many sleepless nights and hunger and thirst, often without food and cold and exposure. Apart from such external things, there's a daily pressure on me of concern for all the churches. And I start off with that because I think we look at Paul sometimes and we're just amazed at what he did. And I read that and I'm still amazed. <laughs> what he went through, what he continued to go through. And I love how he puts in there, and apart from such external things, right? So all that stuff that he's been through, he sees as nothing compared to the concern for all the churches. And we know Paul's journeys on his missionary journeys, how far he went through Asia Minor and to Rome, and he's, he covered so much ground on his three missionary journeys. 
And he was so clear and so insistent on preaching the word of God, preaching the gospel. And he daily, daily had concerns, not only for the churches, but as we get through 2 Timothy, just his personal friends and close friendships. His heart was for them. And so as we look at this, we want to see where Paul is during this time, because I think it's important. So the circumstance of this letter, so Paul's been in, a couple times he's been in prison. We know in the book of Acts, towards the book of Acts, towards the end, it shows that he goes to Rome. He has to be uh, presented before Felix, and he is, I think Felix, and then he goes to, asked to be, go to the emperor of Rome. And he's taken there and he's held in prison. But that's a different kind of prison than where he's at now, right? And that prison, I wouldn't really call it necessarily a prison. He was kind of in a rented house. He was able to come and go freely. He had his parchments. He had his books. He had his friends. Um, he had a guard that was over him, but yet he was not in chains like we'll see here in a minute. But he was kind of free, free to go and do what he wanted to do. But this letter is written probably about six years after that imprisonment. Okay? And so probably around A.D. 66 is kind of where this book was written. And now he's in a different location. This time he is in the Mamertine prison. And I'm going to, just a minute, we'll show you some pictures. Not yet, but we'll show you some pictures of that as we get into it. This was a uh, pretty disgusting, horrible place. Um, this was a prison in Rome. It was their only prison. This prison was, um, this was built by the medieval, and that's when it was called the Mar- Maritime. Now it's just called the prison, and I can't speak Latin or English or uh, uh, Italian, so I'm not even going to try. But it was pretty much the prison now um, after it was built. And it was built over a cistern, and it had two layers. It had a top layer, which was the main prison, and then they would lower the prisoners down into a lower prison uh, cell that was really there for people just to die. So I'll show the pictures real quick. They'll come up. John, so this is... What it sees now, right now there's a church that sits over it, so you can actually go to Rome. Um, of course, the Catholics have built a church over it, and they have set it up as a monument. Uh, it's believed that St. Peter and St. Paul uh, were both held in the cells before they were led off to edu- execution. As we know, um, Apostle Peter, St. Peter was uh, hung upside down on a cross and killed that way. He did not feel like he was qualified or equal to Christ to be the right way. Um, so this was kind of the top portion where they were held, and then show the second port. So this is the hole that's in there, and these are very small, tiny cells. They would lower, they would, not lower them, they pretty much throw them down this hole into the bottom part. And then the bottom part was pretty much the sewage, the sewer of uh, Rome. And they had a door that they would open up, and it would flood out. If anybody had died in there, starved to death, or from disease, they would kind of just wash the bodies out into the Tiber River. So as you can see, as you think about this, as as Paul is sitting in this disgusting, filthy, dungeon with, with just probably rats, darkness, um, cold, but his, his concern was for the churches. His concern was for Timothy. His concern was for ultimately for Christ. His concern was that Christ continues to be preached. His concern was Christ continued to get carried out in the Great Commission to be fulfilled, right? Great Commission, go forward until all the nations about Jesus and preach the gospel and be baptized in the Son, the Father, and the Holy Spirit. That was Paul's biggest concern. So as we see these pictures, and this doesn't even do it justice, if you ask me, it was just not a great experience for him. But again, his attitude, his thoughts were constantly not on himself, but on others. So this is where he'd be held until he'd be taken away, and as we know, St. Paul was beheaded. So actually, he made it out of this prison. Luckily, he didn't get swept away with the sewage like others had. 
But again, now you can see the difference, right? So this is definitely not the same experience he had during his first imprisonment. You know, Acts 28 tells us when he entered Rome, Paul was allowed to stay by himself with the soldiers guarding him. And three days after Paul called together those who were the leading men of the Jews. And not only that, when they were together during this time of prison, he was able to encourage his fellow believers in his first prison. Philippians 1, 12 through 16 says he speaks of all that the brethren of the, of the brethren that have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. So in his first imprisonment, he's able to encourage fellow believers. People are still coming to him. They're not scared to be around him. They want to know more about him. They want to know what he's teaching, what he's, what he's been going around and preaching. Why is he in prison this time? Why is he petitioned to see the emperor? And they want to know. And then the brothers are so much more encouraged because of that. The second time when he's writing Timothy, that now he's in chains. Second Timothy 1.16 says, Onesiphorus was not ashamed of my chains. We also know that he was probably in this prison because it also says that Onesiphorus had to search for him diligently. So it wasn't like he could just go to Rome and ask, hey, where's Paul? And be led to him. He had to actually find out where he was and search for him diligently. And then once he found him, he took care of him. So we see that the difference here. And he didn't have his stuff like he had in the first one, right? In the first time he had his books, he could preach openly, he could do what he wanted to do. This time he didn't have any of his personal items, right? In chapter 4, we'll see that he asked Timothy, when you come, bring my cloak, which you left at Troas, and bring my books, and especially my parchments. And he also asked him to bring Mark along with him, too. And Mark, if we remember from Acts, Mark was the one that uh, they had to, him and Barnabas had kind of a disagreement on whether he didn't want to take him anymore. We don't know exactly why he didn't want to take Mark with him, but um, obviously he didn't think he would help him in his ministry. And so that's when him and Barnabas departed, and that's when Paul uh, took along Silas. And actually on his way, sorry, on his way through Lystra, that's when he met um, Timothy and uh, picked up Timothy on his way, right? So that's kind of the difference if you look at the difference between the two. So you have a nice kind of place where he was, and six years later now he is being held in this prison. But why is the second time so much worse than the first, right? And what was he doing between the first imprisonment and the second imprisonment, right? So we have a lot of history from in the beginning of Acts, all of Acts, what Paul was doing that led up to his first imprisonment. But then it's interesting, after that, we really don't have anything. There's, uh, of course, traditions and uh, writings from outside of Scripture. But within the Scriptures, we don't really have what Paul was doing from the time for that six years kind of in between. Um, but I think we can have a good idea what he was doing, right? I think we know that Paul, being who Paul was, was still going throughout regions of Rome, probably Asia Minor back there if he could, whoever he could go to preach the word, right? He was the leading man for Christ at this time. And he was the one that was going around to the, for Gentiles. And he was the one that was going around and continued to preach. He was doing what he had always done, right? And that's what got him in trouble, I think, into the second one, right? So he continued to be the leading Christian out there. And at this time, um, the emperor in Rome had changed. Now the horrible man about Nero, or Emperor Nero, was now in charge of Rome. Right, and we've probably, you probably all have heard stories of how bad Nero was and how crazy he was. But as we know, Nero ended up burning down the city, a third of the city, right? He burned down half of Rome, or a third of Rome. And, of course, like we all do, we don't want to take responsibility for our own thing, so he blamed the Christians. And so the Christians were, at that time, not very liked, right? If you identified as a believer, as a follower of Christ, you were persecuted. You were not looked on rightly at all um you were 
considered to be an occult, part of the occult. So it was uh, definitely because you're believing in a person that rose from the dead and now sits at the right hand of God. You believe that you're trying to believe that the God came down and died on the cross and rose again. So it was not looked on as good as to be a Christian. And so that's why Nero, or Nero had Paul locked up. And that's why he was in this prison, because he was a political prisoner, right? He was against the, they thought he was against them because he was preaching another king. And we'll read a little bit, I just want to read a little bit of what <clears throat> Nero was like and what he did to the Christians and why we see so much that people probably were not around. So um, I got this, uh, part of this on um, the web, of course. So it says, in their, in their very deaths, they were made the subjects of sport. So talking about Christians here. They were covered with the hides of wild beasts and worried to death by dogs. In other words, they were torn to pieces by dogs. They were hunted. They were nailed to crosses. They were set on fire. And when the day waned, they burned to serve for the evening lights. Nero offered his own garden players for the spectacle and exhibited a Caesarean, something, I can't remember, or else standing in his chariot. So he would stand by in his and just watch. He'd be standing in his chariot or he'd be standing up on his balcony and he'd just be watching all these things go on. For this cause, a feeling of compassion arose towards the sufferers, though guilty and deserving of exemplary capital punishment because they seemed not to be cut off from the public good but were victims of the ferocity of one man. So they did start to get a little bit of a, the Christians started to get a little bit of feeling the bad, people started feeling bad for them, but it wasn't enough to stop Nero. So we see here the second time that Paul has nobody around him. He says in chapter 1, he says that all have deserted him, right? Nobody's with him. So we think about that. I mean, if, if you were going to get persecuted for being a Christian, would we stay? Would you want to be near Paul during this time? No, it's, a, it's not a direct question. Of course, it's kind of rhetorical in a way. But I think it goes back to what we've been learning in Daniel. If you've been here through the last few months of learning about Daniel, and uh, we talked about it last week, a small group, and uh, just the persecution that they all, Daniel and his three friends went through. And I know in our small group we're talking about, we, we always say, that if this came up to me, if I was presented before a fiery furnace or I was told I was going to be thrown in a lion's den if I didn't deny my Savior, oh, yeah, I'm going to do it, right? I'm going to stand there and I'm going to be strong for Christ. And I hope I would be and I hope I never have to figure out if I have to or not. But these people had to make that decision, right? They had to make a decision whether they were going to continue to listen to Paul and do what Paul wanted them to do, wanted them to do and which was serve Christ, or they had to run for their lives. And unfortunately, it seems like a lot chose to run for their lives instead of being with him. It's kind of a, a sad, sad tale, but unfortunately it um, comes all too close at home. So, and hopefully we, we don't, as believers now, we'll have to, have to go through that, but there may be a time. Um, we think about how that applies to our lives today. It's not to the point of being thrown in a dudgeon, but we know that the harassment we get if you are in any kind of workplace and you claim to be a believer and you promote Christ, we're looked on as annoying or pesky or not the same way that others are, are viewed, right? Christianity today is the only religion I can see that you can make fun of and not have any retaliation against you, right? If you make fun of another one, you're a horrible person. You're not open-minded. But if you're a Christian, you're closed-minded. So I pray that and I hope that when the time comes that we will be bold and we will stand strong for Christ. So that's kind of the background of where Paul was, the difference. You kind of get a Hopefully you can get kind of a picture of his mind, his, the state of mind that he was in, which is still pretty profound, right? In all that, he was still had a concern for the church. Most importantly, for this, he had a concern for Timothy, okay? 
So again, Paul's ultimately passing the baton. Why he wrote this letter, he's ultimately passing on the baton of the race for Christ to Timothy. So in his other letters, you can see where he is talking about, come and I want to meet you. I hope to hear about you soon. I hope to come see you. And this one, in the first opening line, he talks about the promise of life in Christ Jesus. So at this time, Paul knows that his time is done. He knows that this is his last imprisonment. This is his last chance. And he's going to be the Savior pretty soon. And as we read, as we go through this book, it's his attitude, his um, perspective is, is just beautiful. Because his only desire is to be with Christ. And he wants to be with his Savior. And he knows that time is coming. So he's prepping Timothy now for that. So why does he write this to Timothy at this time? As I said, he's passing the baton on because he knows that his time is short. He doesn't know exactly when, but he does know that he is not going to be alive that much longer. And this letter is a very personal letter because as we read in the first opening, it's to his child, his son. He calls Timothy his son. And I like to think about the way when, I go, when you go back in Acts and you see where he picks up Timothy. There's not a lot there, but there's something that, he's very, that draws Paul to Timothy. And a lot of it is Timothy's knowledge of the scriptures. He's young, right? Timothy's a young man. Paul at this time is probably around his, in his mid-60s. Timothy's probably in his mid-30s. So he is truly a son, the age of a son to Paul. But when he first met him in, in Acts, he was a lot younger. You know, in First Timothy, he talks about, you know, don't, look him down, look, don't let them look down on you because of your age, right? And so we see that he has a special connection with Timothy. He loves Timothy. And we'll see further how he... He is one that laid hands on Timothy to sort of pronounce his, um, his authority to be able to teach and preach. But Timothy is not an apostle. So Timothy is an elder at the, at the church of Ephesus, but he is not an apostle. Uh, at this time, I believe uh, Paul is one of the few last ones. Of course, we know John was the last apostle, and he died on the island of Patmos. Uh, actually, I think, I'm sorry, he was, he was sent to the island of Patmos, but they think he later died four years later or more uh, in Ephesus. So he went back to the church of Ephesus. And so these are one of the last few men that were close enough to the apostles. And as we know, the apostle age has ended with uh, those apostles and there's no more. And so now you have a secondary person coming on that's supposed to take this message and continue to go with it. We are all called to spread the Great Commission. Right, we're all spread. We're all called to take the gospel to the ends of the earth, and that's what he's encouraging Timothy here. So he says in verse, I'm uh, sorry, uh, in Philippians. We know, well, wait, sorry. Let me go back a little bit. <clears throat> Paul, uh, Timothy has, has been with him, Paul. Like I said, he picked up an axe, went on his mission journeys with him. He sent him to Ephesus to be an elder there for a little while, and then we know that um, he came back and was with P, with, with Paul in his first imprisonment um, in Philippians. Uh, 219 is where he, uh, Paul tells the Philippians, I, I you know, hope in the Lord Jesus to send Timothy to you shortly, so I also may be encouraged when I learn of your condition. So we know that Timothy is with Paul in his first imprisonment, and then later Paul sends Timothy to Ephesus to be an elder. And, that, and this time, Timothy's probably been at Ephesus probably for three years, three to four years possibly, maybe five, um, as an elder there and seen some conditions. As we know, as we read the book of Ephesus, I mean, the book of Ephesians, um, there's a lot of false teachers that are coming in, teaching the wrong doctrine and, and trying to mislead people. And so Timothy has his hands full there. And so that's kind of the reason why he's sitting here. I think as you read through the first chapter, you see that Timothy is, um, you know, he tells him, do not be ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ. You know, um, you know, kindle afresh the spirit within you. You know, he's trying to spur him on, and that's what, because he knows what he has to do. He has to take it to the next level. 
And why should he be so concerned with Timothy? He picked Timothy up. He chose Timothy. So I'm thinking to myself, you know, why in the world does he, how does he know, for one thing, that Timothy is maybe wavering a little bit in his faith? Maybe he's gotten letters. Maybe he's gotten reports. Obviously, if Paul's able to write them, they're getting, he, Paul's probably receiving letters too. We know that. The Corinthians sent Paul letters, and he was answering them in Corinthians and 2 Corinthians. Um, so we know that that could happen. And maybe he just sees that Timothy is waiting. Or maybe Paul just knows, because he knows the scripture so well, that maybe he just knows that even from the beginning, that once the direct connection to God or Christ in this came to the apostles, the next line seems to start to fall away. So I want to look at some Old Testament examples of this. We see, um, and it starts off in Exodus, we see Moses, right? So Moses is with, he's the man of God. He's chosen by God. He gets to go meet with God on the, on the mountain. He talks to God continually. He is the chosen one of God. He does everything he can to make sure that God's name is glorified and that God's name is not trashed or not um, defamed among the nations, right? So when the, the uh, Israelites go out, they start moaning and groaning, and God's like, you know, I'm done. I'm going to, I think, I've been reading the Old Testament for my uh, quiet time, and it's amazing how many times, and just in um, Exodus, how many times God just wanted to be, he's like, I'm done. I'm done with you, Israelites. You're tired of your moaning, you're groaning. I'm going to destroy you, and I'll start over with you, Moses. But Moses always prayed and said, don't do that, because it will defile your name among the nations. You said you're going to do this. You need to continue to do this. So Moses was, as we know, was a man of God. Next in line was Aaron, right? So you had Moses and Aaron, his brother. And Aaron was the, the, pre, the priest line of the Levites. But we can see already in Leviticus 10.1, as soon as, as soon as Moses goes up on the mountain and is gone for a while, Aaron lets the people convince him to make a golden calf. So just right there, you have one, one down from Moses who is going to, he's already doing wrong things, right? And then you look at Aaron's sons. You know, they offered up strange fire. They didn't do what was right before the Lord. So it didn't take long for the Old Testament prophets or whatever, when the, the men, the leading men, after they were gone for the people to make mistakes. Uh, go a little further, go to 1 Samuel 8, 1. You'll see where Samuel's sons, who are Samuel's a priest, right? He's called by God as a young boy, and he serves God with all his heart. And then you'll see his sons are horrible, horrible men, right? We think that there are some preachers these days that we know that take money from the congregation. They are liars. They swindle. They, they do all kinds of bad things they're not supposed to do in the name of the Lord. But this didn't happen. This isn't new. This has been going on since the beginning, right? And Samuel's sons were doing the same thing. They were taking extra portion of the offerings, that, sacrifices that were coming in. They were robbing the people of extra money. Uh, they were doing all the bad things that, um, that they weren't supposed to do. And we'll read a little bit of that just so you get an idea. So it's not just me singing. So sick, uh, 1 Samuel 8, chapter 8, talks about this. It says, And it came about when Samuel was old that he appointed his sons judges over Israel. Now the name of his firstborn was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah. They were judging in Beersheba. His sons, however, did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after dishonest gain and took bribes and perverted justice. And then it goes on to talk about the elders were mad at them and one of them gone. So it didn't take long, right, for them to do that. And then we go further in, that was the time of the judges. You had the prophets and the judges. Then you had the kings come, right? So you had Saul. Saul was around, he was presence of God, he got to talk to God, but towards the end of his life, he did bad things, right? He went and sacrificed and didn't wait on the prophet to come to do it for him. 
or Samuel to come with him. He did it on his own. He didn't do what was right. And then there was David. And then David was, as we know, was a man after God's own heart. He did what was right before the Lord. He walked in the ways of the Lord. He didn't turn from the left or right. He didn't worship other gods from other nations. But what happened, his son after it took over? Then you had um, Solomon, who was supposed to be the wisest man. But Solomon married too many women, <laughs> had a little bit of an issue there. And he let them lead him astray, and he started worshiping other gods. And then after him, his son, after his, the kingdom was split, you had the kingdom of Israel, and you had the kingdom of Judah, the two tribes of Judah, and the rest of Israel. And if you just go through first and second kings, and it just keeps talking about this, this king descended from this, you know, uh, took over after this king, and he did what was wrong. He didn't do what was right in the Lord's eyes. He did wrong. He didn't fall in the ways of the Lord. There maybe was one or two, you know, Josiah the, Josiah the king um, that did what was right, but he still didn't do it fully. They didn't go and they didn't take down all the Asherah poles or the bell poles. They st he still allowed worship at the high places. And so as you can see, it doesn't take long for things to start getting messed up. And that's what Paul's concern is here for Timothy. He is really concerned that Timothy is now the one that's going to be taken off with the message. And he's really concerned that it's going to get twisted and messed up. And that's his biggest, that's what he cares about more than anything. And he can see too in, in, in 2 Timothy 1.15, he says that Valgilius and Homogenes, they turned away from him. So you, they're already starting to fall away. You already start, have to start the people that are starting to turn away from Paul and they're trying to go other ways. So there's many reasons why Paul's writing this, but Paul's writing Timothy again. He wants to encourage him. He wants to warn him. He wants to exhort him. He wants to pray for him. This is not a continuation of 1 Timothy, where 1 Timothy is about setting up and the church and how the church should be run and how we are to intermingle and interact as a Christian body. But this is a letter to pass the baton and to encourage Timothy to go on. These are probably not new things either that Timothy's heard before. He's been with Paul for a long time, but it's nice for him to be reminded of these things, right? So let me ask you a question. How many times do we hear the same sermons over and over again and we think, oh man, I've heard that before. Does it help you to hear these things? This is a question for interaction a little time. Does it help you to hear the same things, or sometimes do you say, man, I've heard this all before, and it doesn't really help? Yeah. I'm sorry? I can, yeah. Yeah, I think, I mean, he's writing Timothy, who is his partner. And in chapter 2, verse 8, he says, remember Jesus Christ. We'll get to that, but it's like I'm reading through this and I'm just going, we always remember Jesus Christ, right? But he has to remind Timothy that. He reminds Timothy that bad things are going to come. It's going to be deceitful men. There's going to be suffering. There's going to be hardship you have to go through. So he's trying to encourage him. And he, but the whole focus, a lot of the focus of 1 Timothy is spreading the gospel. And I think it's interesting. I want to look at Revelation. And why do I look at Revelation? So John is on the island of Patmos. Close to this time, and then this is in, he sends letters out in 68, 69 to the churches when he writes Revelation. And these, these letters go out to the churches. And sure enough, Ephesus, the Ephesian church is one of the first ones. In Revelation chapter 1, he says, uh, oh, sorry. He says, the message to Ephesus, or sorry, chapter 2. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, 
the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands says this, I know your deeds and your toil and perseverance, and that you cannot tolerate evil men, and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles, that they, may, that they are not, and you found them to be false. And you have perseverance and have endured for my namesake, and have not gone, grown weary. So first, he's con- he's, they're doing a lot of good things. Ephesus is a good church, right? They're calling out the apostles. Is this what we're going to go through with Paul's trying to teach Timothy? You need, you need to look for false teachers. You need to be able to hold the, secure the, you know, treat the word of God rightly. Be able to discern it correctly. Be focused on it and be able to put away the false prophets. And that's what they're doing. But verse 4, he says, but I have this against you, that you have left your first love. So he commends them, but then he tells them they've left the first love. And who is their first love? Christ. So they've forgotten Christ. So that's the, to me, that's the overview of why Paul is writing Timothy again in this time. He's, he's about to go to be beheaded. He's sitting in his awful prison. But instead of sulking, instead of complaining, instead of whining, instead of saying life isn't fair, he's like, hey, I need to write Timothy. I need to make sure we do not forget Christ. And I couldn't ask for a a better letter for that. So let me ask you guys this. I told you it would be a little quick today. But um, knowing that, how do we not forget Christ? How do we not be written to and said, you forgot your first love? Yeah, I mean, there's a reason why it says do not forsake the assembly, right? We, we, we spur each other on, encourage each other. How else can we not forget Christ? Yes. No, that's perfect. I, I was, I was going to sum it up kind of like that, but yeah, I, I agree with you. It's, I, I did the same thing. I think too, especially when you, you know, not when you first become a believer necessarily, but when you start to learn about the different doctrines and the different theology, you get, you can get so caught up in that, and then you get, I became really judgmental, right? And then, I forgot the gospel. I forgot Christ. I wasn't remembering what He did, you know. And I think that that's perfect. Yeah, we need those things. God, you know, we need the doctrine, we need the theology to back up, but ultimately we just need Christ. Yeah, yeah Greg.
I agree. It's, it's, it's funny you say that. So when I was doing the research on the, uh, Mar- Mar- I can't say the word, Mar- Marmitine Prison, not Maritime. I thought it was Maritime for a long time. It's not that. Marmitine Prison. Uh, there's a, the Catholics, the Catholic tradition is that when St. Peter was thrown into the dungeon, his head hit the bottom and it caused the spring water, that, the cistern that's under it to, to come up. And there's still supposedly his indent of his head there, but he was able to use that water to bring the water up so he could baptize the jail, the guards and the other prisoners who were in there. And that's the thing. You get lost You can get lost on that kind of stuff. That doesn't have anything to do with anything, really. And you start to focus in on those things, the traditions instead of the word of God, right? And you got to bring it back to that. What else? Anything else? We good? Yeah. Yeah, chapter four, Second Timothy, Paul says, um, "At my first offense, no one was with me, right? But don't, but then he says, don't let it be held against them. You know, it's, people are hard, <laughs> but even in his in his imprisonment and his trials, he still was asking for forgiveness and mercy for the people that deserted him in his time of need. Anything else?" The hand, or you just okay.
Yeah, I, I do think I see that there too, yeah. I mean, especially with the first passage that Greg quoted out of Second Timothy and just tell them to be able to hold the word strong. I think they got so tied up in that. Sometimes you can, again, forget, like we talked about, you get caught up in the doctrines, you get caught up in these things, and you're doing everything right, but yet you're not doing it for Christ necessarily. Or you forget to bring him in to that. Yeah. Any last thoughts? Yes. You're good. Yeah, when we read scripture, we're having our conversation, right? I mean, that's how he talks to us. Yeah, beautiful. Yeah. I know. Yeah. Meditate on it day and night, right? Yeah, I know. It, we let the world seep in really quickly. Let our lives get overwhelmed. Doesn't take long at all. Yeah, thank you. Any last thoughts? All right, so um, that's the kind of the beginning there. So remember, the, the main, again, I think the main point of this is he's, he's passed the baton, and he's going to teach Timothy what to write and what to do wrong and not to forget Christ and things, and that the word is the most important thing. So, so let's go to the Lord in prayer, and then uh, we'll have some fellowship time before. Heavenly Father, again, we are so grateful for your word, Lord. We are so grateful for men, for men like Paul and like Timothy and um, ones that you have called to continue your word going forth. Lord, we thank you for the pastors and the elders that you've put over us and the ones that we uh, can listen to on the internet and those kind of things too that just continually pour your word into our hearts and into our lives. Lord, it's such a blessing. Lord, we thank you for uh, the lessons that we will hopefully learn from Second Timothy. Lord, let us understand our place our place is to learn and to grow and it's to spread that to others as well. It's to continue to preach the gospel. It's our responsibility to, to go forth for the Great Commission. We're not supposed to just to read this and set it aside or um, read this and get entangled with certain doctrines or certain theology. We need to know those things, but we need to know those things so we can take those things and we can share them with others. And so, Lord, I pray that we would have a heart like Paul that is just, doesn't matter what external things are going on around us, that our desire is for you and for your church, which is your body, which is your people. And help us to be in continual prayer for those we know and those we don't know. Help us to always be looking out for those divine appointments that you put in our lives. And help us to be ready for those. Help us to have the words ready, the scripture, uh, your words stored in our heart and be able to recall it in the time of need. Lord, we thank you for those abilities that you've given us. Lord, we praise you. We pray for this Sunday service, that you would just fill this room with your spirit, that we would be blessed to hear the word preached today. 
music would um, glorify you, and then all things you are glorified through the things we say, the things we do, the conversations in the hall, the conversations um, between one another. Lord, I pray that they're edifying, and I pray that they uh, glorify your name. Christ, I pray. Amen.